Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Greg Wells, and this is my podcast. I'm a scientist, a physiologist, an author, and I love exploring how to live a high-performance life. In my books, my presentations, and this podcast, I am doing my best to translate hard science and powerful experiences into actionable, effective life performance strategies. Using the latest research on the brain and the body, this podcast will show you simple but transformative strategies that boost mental and physical health, advance careers, and upgrade lives. I am committed to changing one life at a time for the better. I want to focus on health, happiness, and performance, and I call my mission the billion person problem. And I don't kid myself that I'm going to reach a billion people, but that's the dream and the space where my passion, my expertise, and my practices all come together. My passion is to help people live healthier and more impactful lives. My expertise lies in the research that I both try to conduct and engage in for a living. And my practice is devoted to providing evidence-based insights and strategies that make it possible to achieve personal and professional success. And that is what this podcast is all about. I hope that you love the show and it makes a big difference in your life. Let me know what you think on Twitter at Dr. Greg Wells. And without any further delays, let's dive into this episode of the Dr. Greg Wells podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back. It's great to be with you. Today we're going to do a deep dive into nutrition with Leslie Beck. Leslie is one of the world's leading dietitians. She's offered her help up to thousands of people who have taken her advice and used it to achieve their nutrition and health goals. She has been the lead dietitian for MedCan, which is an incredible organization that helps executives improve their health and performance. Leslie's recognized as an authority on nutrition and food issues. She writes a weekly column in the Globe and Mail, Canada's national newsletter, and is a regular contributor to CTV News, where she helps to decode the latest nutrition research. She's also the best-selling author of 12 books, which include The Plant-Based Power Diet, Leslie Beck's Healthy Kitchen, Leslie Beck's Longevity Diet, among others. She consults with many leading businesses and international food companies in Canada, the US, and Europe, and delivers nutrition seminars to groups around North America. She has also worked for as a nutritionist for the Canadian International Marathon and the NBA's Toronto Raptors Basketball Club. She also works on her health by keeping fit, doing running, cycling, and weight training. So I basically rapid fire question Leslie about a whole bunch of nutrition topics, including supplements and probiotics and plant-based eating. And she rapid fire answers me all the way through this conversation. So it's a lot of information that's going to come at you really, really fast. Break out your notepad and uh, take some notes because it's going to help you to keep track of all of the things that we actually discuss on this interview in which I had a load of fun. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation and please enjoy my conversation with dietitian Leslie Beck. Leslie, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. 
So tell me a little bit about what your day-to-day is like, because you're all over the place. You're <laughs> writing articles, you're consulting. Like, what does your day-to-day look like? Well, that depends on the day. But um, so so three full days a week, I'm in my private practice based out of MedCan in Toronto, seeing clients, working with people one-on-one um, to help them achieve their nutrition and health goals, whatever that may be. It might be weight loss. Um, I'm delving into a lot of irritable bowel syndrome these days. Um, it might be lowering your cholesterol, lowering their blood sugar, um, many, many different goals. So, and so what I do is I work with my clients on an ongoing basis. So over over a period of time, and I work with them to assess their diet and actually develop a specific personalized meal plan for them. And we tweak it along on the way. Um, another, you know, at least five, six hours a week, I'm spending researching and writing my Globe and Mail column, which, which is in the newspaper and online every week. Um, I'm doing seminars. I'm the, the food and nutrition director for MedCan, uh, which entails also, and we're very busy right now developing and launching new nutrition programs for clients, um, whether they're internal clients or external clients. And one of them really excited about is this very specific nutrition and diet program for irritable bowel syndrome or IBS. And the other one, which, which I'm so interesting to me is a nutrition, a very robust nutrition program combined with um, psychology for the treatment of depression. So there's a whole Mm. bunch of, there's a growing amount of literature, nutritional psychology or psychiatry, it's called, um, showing that an anti-inflammatory diet, a very healthy diet, not only lowers the risk of developing depression, but um, there has been a trial out of Australia, the SMILES trial that has shown a landmark study, I'd say, that found that such a diet can actually significantly reduce depressive symptoms. And the other thing I do is I work very closely with our executive chef at MedCan to um, help him develop, create recipes that are in line with our food philosophy, Um, whether they're the meals we serve in our annual health assessment, the ones that we that are we sell in retail in our kiosk, or um, we do office catering as well. So I'm I'm busy with working with the chef. So I, I guess I wear a lot of hats, but that's what keeps my job pretty interesting. I think working with the chef would probably be the most fun and potentially instantaneously rewarding, but we'll get to that one um, later on because I'm really interested in nutritional psychiatry. Can you tell me a little bit more about the link between food and depression? That's yeah. fascinating. I've heard it a number of times, but I'm, I'm really interested in diving deeper into that particular topic. Sure, sure. Um, you, you know, so there, there, ha- there have been um, many observational studies that, that, have, that have associated with, you know, an unhealthy diet, one that's higher in saturated fat, sugars, low in fruits and vegetables, and so on, with a greater risk of depression, anxiety, and, and other mood disorders as well. And at the same time, they, you know, a number of studies have been showing that um, a very healthy eating pattern, a very healthy dietary pattern is associated with the lower risk. And then as I was mentioning earlier, back in 2016, I believe that's the right year, um, the SMILES trial out of Australia, this was a randomized control trial that used a modified Mediterranean diet. So that is, you know, lots of, it's plant forward, lots of fruits and vegetables, nuts, legumes, low on red meat. Um, The major fat, of course, is is olive oil, which is anti-inflammatory. 
they they showed that that diet actually reduced depressive symptoms and did so much better than the 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 participants that were just getting social counseling or social support I should say so the thinking is is that diet you know we have this gut brain access our that works you know the, we our our brain and our gut communicate with one another and how the role nutrition and diet plays in that is that diet is thought to uh, work to tr- to reduce the risk of depression, maybe treat depressive symptoms um, through anti-inflammatory effects. So inflammation is involved, but, and also through the microbiome. So those are two, the two things at play, inflammation and the microbiome. Can you explain the food inflammation link and specifically what foods might be anti-inflammatory, what foods might be pro-inflammatory? Sure. Uh, So Anti-inflammatory foods are those foods, you know, fruits and vegetables, oily fish that are rich in omega-3 fats, um, nuts, seeds, plant foods basically um, are very anti-inflammatory. And those foods contain many vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, um, disease-fighting phytochemicals that have anti-inflammatory properties. So they can reduce inflammation in in the body, keep it at bay. Whereas animal type foods, whether it's meat, whether it's a lot of animal fat, um, sugar as well, too much sugar, um, those types of foods are pro-inflammatory, so they can increase inflammation in the body. Interesting. And that's great. It just fits the consistent pattern that we see. It's basically like eat really healthy food, eat foods you recognize as foods, don't eat processed foods. Like it's it's a, a very consistent pattern that I'm, I'm hearing from a number of different guests. And you mentioned that you're really interested in, in IBS and that's one of the programs that you're developing now that you're really excited about. Um, I've also seen an uptick in uh, people with IBS that, that I work with. And uh, I'd love your take on maybe why what is irritable bowel syndrome and why is it, it on the uptick, do you think, right now? Well, I, I think so. Irritable bowel syndrome is really this catch-all term that we um, uh, we give to people who are experiencing um, digestive complaints. Whether that's it can be constipation, and some people it's diarrhea, often bloating and gas, abdominal pain, and 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 it's really so. When when these people go, they go to their family doctor, the gastroenterologist, and they get tested, they get scoped, and there's really there's nothing physically, organically wrong with them. Then you know they you have irritable bowel syndrome. So what we've learned, um, thanks to Monash University in, um, in Australia over the past um, number of years, is that up to 70, 75% of IBS is related to something called FODMAPs. FODMAP is an acronym for six different types of carbohydrates and foods that are poorly absorbed um, in in your small intestine. So they make their way to your large intestine where um, they can pull in water. So that may cause loose stools. They're fermented by bacteria that reside in the colon so they can cause gas and bloating, abdominal pain. And um, so by following a low FODMAP diet, which is a diagnostic diet, it's not a diet forever, but it, you know, for two to six to eight weeks, depending on, on, 
how people respond. Um, you can the per, the point purpose is really to identify which FODMAPs cause people grief and then modify their diet. So for two to two to eight weeks, it's really you eliminate the foods that are very high in FODMAPs. And then after it's a testing or a challenge phase. So one week, very strategically, and you really do need to work with the dietitian to do this properly, but you test one FODMAP at a time. Um, and that process takes a while. But I will tell you, Greg, that in s- over the years since I've been a dietitian working with IBS, this is the best tool I have in my toolbox. It has helped so many people feel dramatically better. So and so the other people, you know, tw- the other 25% that aren't sensitive to these FODMAPs, uh, there may be other dietary modifications we have to make, whether it's constipation diet uh, dominant IBS or diarrhea dominant IBS. There are different triggers um, that can that can exacerbate or cause symptoms. So if you have, if someone's listening, they have IBS, they know someone with IBS basically get them into, uh, encourage them to see a dietitian, ask about this FODMAP testing protocol and Mm -hmm. that they can look up from from Monash University in Australia. Fantastic. Is that one of the reasons why people are sometimes confused between being gluten intolerant or not, yet they still don't feel good when they have those foods that I guess would be high in FODMAPs. Is that a way of thinking about that confusion that a lot of people have? Yeah, I, I think you, you you might be right. Uh, you know, I think that if people are, you know, we've heard so much over the, the, the years that, you know, or that gluten, oh, it's gluten, you sh- you got to take gluten out of your diet, you can't tolerate gluten, and it causes all these symptoms. And for some people, yes, they are sensitive to gluten. And it's not just people who have celiac disease who are gluten intolerant, but we know there's something called non-celiac gluten sensitivity as well. So you test negative for celiac disease, but gluten still bothers you. That aside, um, you know, I think there are people who have, the, you know, they might they might feel bloated more often or have more gas. And so they decide, oh, it must be gluten. So they take gluten out. But you're right. They still have these symptoms. Gluten hasn't helped. And I will say, too, the other one of the FODMAPs, um, it, 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 the F in FODMAP stands for fructans. Fructans are a carbohydrate in wheat, rye, and barley. So on the low FODMAP diet, we take those foods out. And because we do, we just tell people, you know, you're going to be eating gluten-free. So you're not going to be having wheat pasta, wheat bread, or rye bread. But it's not the gluten that's the FODMAP. Um, it's, it's the fructans, the carbohydrates in those foods. So people sometimes get confused that, you know, if I, ha- I, I can't eat gluten because I'm on this low FODMAP diet. It, gluten is Going gluten-free is just a way to get rid of the fructans, if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally does. And that that's super helpful um, to clarify that because I know so many people have, have asked me about, about that. So that's incredibly helpful. I want to ask you about behavior change because when it comes to making alterations in our diet, I think a lot of people really struggle with um, with making those changes and sticking with them long-term or, or not. And what have you seen people do that's enabled them to be uh, successfully modified the way that they eat and improved their health through doing so? Are there any patterns that you're seeing or is there any sort of through line that you've discovered that 
people could consider when it comes to eating better? Because I know so many people struggle with making those changes. It's true. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there are a few things and, and I think some of those strategies will be very different for different people. I mean, first and foremost, let, let's assume then that we have somebody that's really motivated to make some change because they need to get their blood sugar down or their weight off, whatever the case may be. So the motivation is there. They're ready to make the change. So mm-hmm. that said, then I think um, what I see is is... Well, I mean, to maintain that change, to make the behavior change, I think um, having a very realistic, doable plan is important, not something that's completely complicated to um, operationalize in their life, you know, nothing. And that's, you know, when I come into play with my clients, I sit down, I listen to them about their schedule, their work, their home life, you know, the, the and and so I I've got to give some a plan to somebody that they're going to really be able to to run with and and sustain for the long term. So I'm not about short term quick fixes at all. So I think that's yeah, I that's really important as well. Um, then I think the other thing that comes into play that's key um, is just being organized planning in advance that is and the busier people are and we're all really busy today um the more important that becomes but if you're really organized let's say you you batch cook on the weekend or you get a little bit ahead having some food ready um for the week whether it's a pot of soup or some some people meal prep for the week um it's going to make life so much easier. You're going to be more ready to do it. Um, so I, I think that helps too, getting ahead, um, getting buy-in from the family, making sure that, you know, everybody's on board and everybody's supportive is important as well. Um, and then, of course, you know, for people that are are, are following certain, you know, they're making dietary changes. They really want them to stick. I I think people need, especially when they're starting out, um, and especially if they have a goal, an end goal, they need, I'm a big fan of accountability systems being in place. Mm -hmm. You know, whether that in the beginning for some of my clients, I get my clients to, okay, I'm going to get you to keep a food diary for at least two weeks because I know it makes people do it better. And then of course I have something objective to look at. Um, for other people trying to lose weight or on a plan to lose weight, it means stepping on the scale. For some people, that's once a week. And for some people, it's every day because you're you're seeing, you're, you're reminding yourself of what you're trying to do, what your goal is, um, and it can motivate you or it can, you know, make you do think, be a little tighter with your plan. Um, other For other people, it's, you know, again, with, with, it's measuring their foods, but whatever your accountability system is, some people it's, you know, you've got a buddy you go off to the gym with. Um, I think that's important as well. And that really helps people stick. And the longer you can stick and integrate something into your life, the more likely you are it's going to last. I agree. The accountability partner is massive. The food prep thing is is huge. And the busier we are, the more effort I think that we need to put into planning. Mm-hmm. And I know that everyone sort of throws it off and then you end up making last minute decisions. And that's when everything sort of falls apart because you're exhausted, you're tired and you're hungry. And that usually doesn't work. From my own personal experience, that does not go very well. Um, I'm going to just throw a couple words out at you okay. and get your thoughts on them just because nutrition's so fun. You can, <laughs> you can do this. Um, coconut oil. 
Okay, so... <laughs> no pressure, no pressure, no pressure, no pressure, no, no pressure. No, I've got lots to say about coconut oil. That's fine. All right. You know, it wasn't too many years ago where you go on the internet and it would be the, the healthiest oil in the world I've, I've, I've seen. So coconut oil is, um, it is popular among many people. It is about 83 to 86% saturated fat. So that's the type of fat that can raise our LDL or bad blood cholesterol. That said, the type of saturated fat in coconut oil does not raise your cholesterol to the same extent, let's say, the saturated fat in butter would. Um, and there may even be with some of the um, uh, some of the types of fat in coconut oil, it's possible there's some health benefits uh, to it. That said, um, I, you know, if, if people want to use coconut oil, fine. It has a nice flavor. It's got some good characteristics. But I tell people don't use it and, and, and exclude and every other kind of oil because in my opinion, um, number one, there is a lot of the other unsaturated oils on, out there, whether they're monounsaturated oils like extra virgin olive oil, um, peanut oil, for example, avocado oil, whether there's polyunsaturated oils, safflower, sunflower, um, canola has a lot of polyunsaturated fats. Those oils have nutritional properties that coconut oil don't. They may have um, a, a plant-based omega-3 fat called alpha-linolenic acid. Um, many of those oils are excellent sources of vitamin E, which is an antioxidant that keeps our brain cells, that protects our brain cells. Um, you know, and, and they also have um, phytochemicals. So I personally think there are much healthier oils to be using in your diet than coconut. So if you want to use coconut oil, use it a little bit, but use these other oils as well. And certainly also, um, you know, it was it was June uh, 2017 where the American Heart Association put out an advisory um, on dietary fats and cardiovascular disease uh, and among many of their other findings when they reviewed all of the evidence um, they are still continuing to say that, yes, because coconut oil does raise your cholesterol, it's an oil they are not recommending. Got it. Next word that I'm going to throw out at you, just because I'm having fun with this and it seems to be working. Um, supplements. Okay. Yeah. So, so I do recommend supplements depending on the person. So what are some of the ones that I would recommend? Um, um, so... Multivitamin and minerals, so broad base, low dose coverage. I will recommend um, one to well anyone that's following a low calorie diet for weight loss, just to ensure mm. that they're getting everything they need. Because when you're cutting back to 15, 1400 calories a day or a little bit less, it can be hard to meet your daily requirements for things like folate, vitamin C, iron, iron especially for menstruating women. So a multivitamin just gives you a little bit of an edge on that. Um, after the age of 50. The, uh, we are recommended to get the majority of our vitamin B12 from a supplement or fortified foods. And that's because many older adults, is, we, are, we become less efficient at um, absorbing B12 from foods. Um, it, it, you need stomach acid to do that. And, and as we get older, we can produce less stomach acid. Um, B12 is also really important in a multivitamin or maybe a B complex for people who are taking either metformin, a drug that uh, controls blood sugar, or proton pump inhibitors, uh, medications that are used to treat ulcers or um, gastro GERD, uh, reflux disease. Um, people who are on them long term, if you block acid, 
you're not going to be getting, you're not going to be absorbing as much B12 from foods. So that's another reason to take a multi. Um, vitamin D, you know, it's certainly in the in the fall and winter months, but for some people year round, um, I recommend just to keep our blood level in a sufficient range. We're not making any vitamin D through our skin in the fall and winter when we lack the proper sunlight. Um, and that's really based on the evidence that we have is based on bone health. Um, so if you if you're if you keep your vitamin D level in your blood in, in a sufficient range, that is associated with better bone health. Um, that said, there was just, I don't know if you saw the news, um, big study. It was actually published on Saturday in the New England Journal of Medicine called The Vital Trial. And it looked at um, taking vitamin D, 2,000 international units a day, um, and omega-3 supplements, so fish oil, uh, for preventing uh, cardiovascular disease and cancer. Overall, well, vitamin D, well, we'll just say we can come back to omega-3s later, but vitamin D, they found that it, it did not reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease or cancer. So that's not why we're recommending vitamin D. It's really bone health. Um, what else would I do? Calcium, I'm really, I try to tell people to get that through diet first. There is there is some concern out there that taking high doses and supplements can, can um, um, cause calcification of the arteries. So I really try to get through foods. Fish oil, I may recommend ba based on diet. Again, if people can't or won't eat a certain amount of oily fish per week, they may consider taking an omega-3 supplement um, from a heart health standpoint, um, as well as a brain health standpoint. What else is, what else am I missing? And, and then it's really, you know, it's completely individualized. Um, but I am of the mind, absolutely foods first. Whole foods provide not only vitamins and minerals, but fiber, you know, antioxidants, phytochemicals that you just can't get in a pill. That said, though, there certainly are some I do recommend. Yeah, I agree uh, with, with that approach as well. Um, food first and then supplements where you may have some deficiencies. I also weirdly don't absorb B12. Mm. And so I've had to, I found that out. And so I supplement to B12 and a couple other things too. Um, another one that's interesting me lately is probiotics. Yeah. So what's your thought on that? Wow. Well, um, you know, and I get this question, I think I wrote something about it in the Globe and Mail not too long ago. You know, the question from a reader was, you know, you know, I'm pretty darn healthy, should I take a probiotic? Is it, is it good for me anyway? Should I do that? And, and you know what? Interestingly, there is some research out there to suggest that taking a probiotic every day, if you're really health, if you're already healthy, may have benefits for your gut, may, may make your gut even a little bit healthier. Um, but really, the research we have on probiotics has to do with very specific um, strains of these bacteria that have been proven in studies to have certain effects in the body. So there are certain strains for inflammatory bowel disease, specifically ulcerative colitis. There are specific mm. strains that have been tested to reduce uh, the risk of um, uh, traveler's diarrhea, certain strains that have been proven, that have been shown to be helpful for irritable bowel syndrome, for reducing the risk of antibiotic-associated uh, diarrhea. So there, so these ones have been studied. Um, so if you are looking for a specific health benefit, um, then you really do need not every single probiotic out there is going to do it. You have to, you have to buy the one with the very specific strain, and that's not easy to know as a consumer. 
do you have any thoughts and feel free to say no, because there's a way out there on having your microbiome tested and then yeah. looking at different strains and seeing if you need to supplement to address those issues? For sure. I'm happy to talk about that because the microbiome, this is just a huge, fascinating area that we know so little about and, and one day we'll know a lot more about. And it's really, it's a bit of my passion these days, microbiome cool. and diet. And, and certainly your diet is the number one thing that can, besides, of course, antibiotics, but the number one thing that can really change your microbiome. Um, so um, what was your question <laughs> again? The, the, the microbiome, and just because it came up when you're talking about probiotics, yes. I was wondering like if we supplement a... Okay. Oh, having your um, microbiome tested. Yeah. And then supplementing to where you're... Right. Um, whatever we've discovered through that testing. So certainly there are companies out there that you can send in your stool sample to and they, and they will test your microbiome. And they'll send you back a nice little snapshot of the different kinds of bacteria, species, yeast, whatever you have in your gut. And they may even say that, you know what, you, you, this is, you have a healthy microbiome. We don't really truly know what a healthy microbiome is, and that may be different for different people. So what we say today, sort of a, what we think is a healthy microbiome is one that is diverse in species. So you've got lots of different kinds of bacteria, not a high concentration of just one. Um, so that's really all we know. So you get this report back and some of them may have a little bit of diet advice, but really the science isn't there yet. We absolutely mm -hmm. don't have the research to say, because this is your microbiome, this is these are the supplements you should be taking, or this is the food you should be eating to move your microbiome in, in this direction. I think what we do know, though, is really the best diet for your microbiome seems to be a plant-based diet, one that's got lots of fiber in it. You're, you're, those bacteria in your gut feed on fiber. And so it's really important to be getting lots of fiber in your diet. And I think that's one thing we can say generally. And that's why the other thing I'm, it concerns me, you know, these, the, you know, following and I mean, a ketogenic diets really popular today, you know, at which these very low carb diets where you're not getting the fiber, um, people that are going to be following them long term, I don't know what effect that can have on their mic, you know, long term in terms of their microbiome. That's really interesting. I hadn't actually thought of that um, when it came to the ketogenic diet. I think from my my ex, my experience and looking at it, the ketogenic diet I think has some benefits for people with cancer undergoing chemotherapy, definitely for epilepsy yep. and seizure disorders. But um, the long term use, short term weight loss appears to be beneficial. Long term weight loss does not seem to have an effect. But I hadn't actually considered the fact that there's um, so little fiber, what that might do to the microbiome. That's really interesting. Right. Hadn't considered that before. Glad you brought that up. You did mention plant-based eating, and that's another area that has become extremely popular lately. Uh, any thoughts whatsoever on on that strategy when it comes to a dietary pattern? No, I, I think it's a really healthy dietary pattern. Um, it's not the only healthy one. I, I'm a big proponent of the Mediterranean diet as well, um, which is plant forward, but not 100% plant based. But I am, um, I do certainly think that a 100% plant based diet is a very healthy way to eat. It's good for the planet too. Um, I, I certainly there has been research done showing that it can help people, you know, reverse their their diabetes, uh, it can help people with, 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 with coronary heart disease and angina, it, it can, it can help 
with those parameters a lot. Um, and, and I think the foods in it are, are, you know, lots of fruits and vegetables, plant-based protein. Um, I have nothing bad to say about that diet as at, at all. Great. And you mentioned the Mediterranean diet as the other healthy eating patterns. Funny, I say there's two healthy eating patterns. There's plant-based, and I don't mean vegetarian or vegan or anything like that. It's just like right. plant-based, which is the vast majority of your food is plants and the rest of it. We don't need to really worry about it too much. But the other one is Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. And can you clarify what that is and what that looks like for people sure, as well? Sure, and, and I'm our food philosophy at MedCan is is really one of our guiding principles for that is 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 Mediterranean mm-hmm. style diet. Um, so that is it's a plant forward diet, daily emphasis on fruits and vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts and seeds, red meat is be poultry and fish would be sort of your more main animal protein foods. Um, red meat is maybe a a few times a month. Certainly the traditional Mediterranean diet, red meat was eaten no more than two to three times a week. They have re- revised the Mediterranean diet to make it more in keeping with modern day life. So I think they've, I think red meat might be eaten a few times a week now. Um, and of course the main, the principal oil is, is extra virgin olive oil, which is rich in monounsaturated fat. Um, so, you know, and the Mediterranean diet in my mind is really the gold standard diet because of the many, many different health benefits that have been associated with it. Um, in, from cardiovascular disease to diabetes, to reducing the risk of Alzheimer's disease, eat to depression, even to arthritis, it has been studied a lot. Um, and um, so, yeah, and for some people, it is, it's, um, it, it's just, a, it's a really good example of a plant-based diet. And as you say, it's not a vegan diet, not 100% plant-based, but it's one that's, and it tastes great too. Absolutely. I could eat Mediterranean style eating. Oh my gosh. I had an epic meal in um, the Middle East once that was one of the best meals. <gasps> it's my favorite had. cuisine. So, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, one of the other areas in addition to nutrition that seems to capture people's attention. And I know that there's a ripple effect between nutrition um, and this other area, which is sleep. Uh, those two seem to be the areas where I get the most questions and people are the most concerned and struggling the most at the moment. So is there any link between your nutrition and how you sleep? And are are there any strategies available, nutritional strategies available to people that might actually help them to sleep better? Yeah, there are some. Sure. Um, I I, I think, uh, I mean, one thing that probably comes to a lot of people's mind first is is over consuming caffeine. If you're drinking caffeinated coffee mm. all day long, that that does yes, caffeine is a drug and it it produces mental alertness, which is a good thing during the day when we're at work. But if you're continuing to consume caffeine, that can keep your brain wired at the end of the day, make it harder for some people, not everybody, because some people can tolerate that, get to sleep. Um, but the other thing that's that studies have shown is that caffeine can actually block the brain release of a neurotransmitter called adenosine, um, which is released, to my understanding, at the end of the day, which helps calm the body, prepare prepare it for sleep. Um, the other thing, you know, studies do suggest that eating a, a heavy, high-fat meal at the end of the day. So if your evening meal is high in fat, that can make it, make it more difficult to sleep. And certainly if you have 
you, you know, you you have, for example, um, reflux. So you, you, it's important to sort of curb certain foods and the timing of eating so that you're not, so that you're not having certain foods that can disrupt your sleep. And so that you're not eating too close to bed. So your symptoms can influence your sleep. So there, it, there's, there's different strategies, I think for different people. Um, but you're right. Sleep is, um, you know, it's, 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 key. I mean, I tell people, I, one of the questions I always ask my clients when I meet them, I try, I find out, you know, okay, on average, how many hours of pretty decent sleep do you get a night? Cause to me, that's important, um, for, for many reasons, but it's surprising how many people, you know, six or less or very disrupted sleep as well. So, um, working on sleep hygiene, sleep habits, I think from a health standpoint, um, and enabling to you to do all the other things, whether it's change your diet is, is really important. Interesting. Um, and I, I love the fact that there's some backup for that idea that your sleep can be improved by, uh, your nutrition as well. That's really, really cool. How has your, thinking evolved over the last few years like what sort of changes in in your thinking around nutrition have happened like what what's sort of blowing your mind at the moment where like what is shifting and, and where do you think um yeah I'm just sort of curious about how 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 your thinking has evolved because I've been tracking your work for many many years and I've seen um, I've been reading your stuff for years, I'm sort of creeping you on the internet, which can happen these days, which is quite cool. Um, and I, I've seen an evolution in, in your writing. Yeah. So I'm just curious, like, what was the, like, what's going on there? Like, what are you learning? What are you thinking? What's, what's, what's so happened? So much is happening. It's, it's, it's crazy. I mean, it's, and you know, I no wonder consumers are so confused about nutrition and sometimes frustrated because, you know, uh, we're learning things every day and sometimes it's conflicting with what we heard yesterday. So, but, but I love this field because I am constantly learning. And I think, what am I paying attention to now? Um, we mentioned it earlier, absolutely the microbiome, how what you eat in influences your gut health and how that can influence the rest of your health. I think that is that I'm really paying attention to. Mental health is big. We're learning now, which we didn't even think about diet and mental health 10 years ago, really. We never talked about mm -hmm. it, but that research is, is really starting to unfold. And there was a... Um, a viewpoint published not to, it was actually, it was 2015 um, in the Lancet Psychiatry. And the researchers basically concluded that nutrition is, a, is as important to psychiatry as it is to cardiology, gastroenterology, and I forget what the other one was. So they, you know, and that was three mm -hmm. years ago. So that is on my radar screen. I think the other, um, the other thing that's really interesting around this whole, very popular today, not sure for the right reasons, intermittent fasting. And just the, the idea that, you know, when we eat influences our health, whether it's our blood sugar and insulin, our blood pressure, our cholesterol. So our metabolic health may impact our weight as well. Um, so that, and, and just how, I think it's fascinating how all of our organs have their own biological clocks and they have a circadian rhythm for how they process um, 
how their their cells work and how our bodies process foods and nutrients. To me, that whole field of chrononutrition is fascinating as well. And I don't think we know nearly as much as we should, but it's interesting what's what's coming out. Um, and then I think how I've, I'm changing a little bit in my writing too, because it, it resonates with me and it's important to me. I think now what we're doing that we didn't do much of, if at, you know, 10, 15, certainly not 20 years ago, is when we decide what we're going to eat. To me, I also have to think about the environment. Um, how does that impact the environment? How does that impact to me? What I hold your, like very important to me is animal welfare. So those are things that, that come into my food decisions as well. And, you know, they didn't 15, 20 years ago, but it's pretty hard to ignore that now. Yeah. Even five yeah. years ago, um, that wasn't in play no. at all. And now it's become absolutely clear that the food choices that we make have a huge impact on mm -hmm. climate change. And also, I think we can't ignore the animal welfare exactly. issue and trying to live a cruelty-free life makes 100%. sense to me. Um, and that's you know something that you really have to, to wrap your head around as you begin to make um, a lot of these decisions. And you can't ignore it anymore. It's just, it, it, we know that this is an issue. We know that we have to address it. And the little things that we do on a daily basis can have a huge impact. That's right. Yeah. So on that note, how can people track you online, learn more, uh, find your articles? Where can people connect with you online? Um, so you can go to my website, um, lesliebeck.com, L-E-S-L-I-E-B-E-C-K.com for sure. My website is, I update it on a very regular basis, talk a lot about, you know, what's going on in research, give people new recipes, all of that sort of stuff's on there. You can follow me on Twitter, lesliebeckrd. Um, and of course, I have a business page also on Facebook. Facebook and LinkedIn. So you can follow me those. And every single day I'm, I'm putting out content as well. Yes, you absolutely are. Final question. And I'll let you go. Cause I know how busy you are. Favorite new recipe back to the beginning, working with the chefs. That's what I'm most interested in. Coolest recipe that you've found recently oh, you think is, is interesting. Gosh. That is such a hard question because I am a total foodie. Um, Oh, foodie. I have so many cookbooks. I was so absolutely excited. Um, a week ago this past Friday, Otto Lenge. I don't know if you are you familiar with Otto Lenge? Oh, oh my gosh. No. He's Israeli born, Brit, living in London, British chef. He has a number of cookbooks out, very plant forward. Um, plenty, plenty more. He just, and he's flavor, lots of ingredients can be a little you know, for the home cook, it can be a little daunting, but he just released his new book called Simple and no more than 10 ingredients, 30 minutes or less to make. Um, so I went to, he at George Brown Culinary Institute in Toronto, he had a book launch. There were more than 200 people there and he was so entertaining. Bonnie Stern was the moderator interviewing him. So that was sort of the highlight of my last, you know, my last month. But anyway, um, so I have a number of recipes. Um, working with the chef. We've created a lot. Um, some of my favorites, we uh, we created a an amazing flavorful soba noodle um, soba noodle bowl with you know buckwheat noodles and this beautiful um, Asian flavored dressing, lots of vegetables. Um, he makes an amazing we, we created together as for our takeout food. Um, it's a chicken shawarma bowl with 
you know, chicken breast, the shawarma marinade is to die for and homemade hummus, whole wheat couscous, lots of, you know, Israeli salad. It was just, it's delicious, the flavors. And our chef, Jason, Jason Smith is, is amazing in terms of, um, he's self-taught and in terms of the flavors that he comes up with are, are just mind blowing. Amazing. Leslie, thank you so much for taking the time. I know how busy you are. I really appreciate it. And I thank you so much for taking the time to come oh, hang out with us today. Oh, it's been fun. Thank you so much, Greg. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you joining me for this episode of the podcast. Your time is incredibly valuable and spending it with me is just mind-blowing. I, I thank you so much for doing that. It's great. If you want to support the show, if you enjoyed that segment and you want more, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and on Google Play. That makes a huge difference for us. And then also, if you can let me know what you think, all of my social media are at Dr. Greg Wells. And of course, if you can share this with anyone in your network, it would be greatly appreciated as well. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. And we'll speak to you again really, really soon.